Hello there. You are listening to On Educating Girls, Creating a World of Possibilities, a podcast produced by the National Coalition of Girls' Schools. And I am Trudy Hall, your host for these important conversations about girls. In this episode, we will be discussing the use of social media among girls because, quite simply, it's an undeniably powerful force in their lives. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, WhatsApp. We know these apps because we and our daughters use these apps. A Pew Research Center article released in April of this year noted that Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok are especially popular with young adults, with at least 70% of 18 to 29-year-olds happily claiming they access Instagram daily, with 6 out of 10 admitting they check it multiple times a day. We cannot not talk about this, as it is almost all that teenage girls are talking about. I think that, like, social media is, like, such, like, a big part of, like, my life. Like, I, like, when I'm bored, I go on TikTok, and I think, like, that's really bad sometimes. Um, But I think, like, the days that we don't have our phones are some of, like, the most memorable days because you're not worrying about what people think you look like. I have grown up with two sisters, so we're like an all-girls household, and then I'm here at an all-girls school, and so I definitely see the side of social media that is harming to like how you view yourself and how you feel about yourself, but I also think that social media, if used in the right way, is really important because it, it's such a fast way to spread knowledge and information. Social media um, uses algorithms and chooses photos to show their users next that um, could potentially like make someone more interested or more addicted to social media. So one of those, like an example would be like a model and then in the next, you may see a model on your page and then in the next photo it could be like a weight loss supplement or something like that. And you're like, oh, that's, I need to lose weight. The girls' voices you will hear during this episode are those of Maddie, Lizzie, and Alexa. As we listen to them, we are reminded that girls growing up today have no before. Social media has always been a part of their lives as they are the second generation to come of age with smartphones in hand. As recently as 2017, according to Pew, 95% of teens 13 through 17 reported having access to a smartphone, with 45% admitting they were online nearly constantly. Yet social media tools and use are constantly evolving, and accurate data is elusive. Originally imagined as helpful social networking tools, a number of apps have been misappropriated to spread misinformation or have become marketing engines that identify and target unsuspecting users who don't understand how search algorithms work. The bullying of peers and efforts to negatively impact body image are worrying realities as well. So we wonder, how can parents create boundaries for how social media will be used? How can the adults in young girls' lives intersect and intervene with this mind-boggling, ever-changing, larger-than-life force that touches so many elements of their daughters' social lives? I don't know if you know about people's like Finstas. They're like your Instagram, a second account that you only let like your close friends follow. Um, Finstas have been like kind of a dangerous thing for my friends 
because you know like you think like only your friends will see it and then all of a sudden like your parents have it or like the school administration has it and then you're in trouble for something you posted and so i think like when when you don't follow like being posted when you didn't give permission for yourself to be posted it's it's really like uncomfortable and yet like it's just kind of like it's a reminder that like there could be a camera on you at any time so like on snapchat um when i post like a picture on my story up to 400 500 people view that and that's not like a big like it's just kind of like people will swipe through and passing but if i posted something mean about someone which i never would four four or five hundred people would see that and have that opinion of that person before i even like before they even knew that i didn't like them without giving away my age let's just say that i do remember a time before social media in fact social media only became a force in my work as an educator in the last few decades early on we were scrambling to find calm voices of wisdom that had done the research and knew how to counsel us in our work with girls. Today, I am privileged to host a conversation with one such wise professional, a woman who has been in the trenches, if you will, leading the charge with educators and parents as the social media forces have swirled around our girls. I am joined now by Dr. Katherine Steiner-Adair, a clinical psychologist, author, and practitioner who has committed herself for over a decade to minimizing the substantial social media risks for teenagers. Author of The Big Disconnect, she cares deeply about ensuring children have what she calls, quote, the tools of our humanity, end quote, even as she understands that their ability to master technology will play a crucial role in their success. Catherine, I have very intentionally let our listeners hear the opinions of girls on social media before welcoming you. As I know, this is your world. You have heard girls' voices articulate these opinions and share their stories. So let me welcome you to the conversation and let's jump right in if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Let's go. You wrote The Big Disconnect almost a decade ago, and yet so much of that remains relevant. Um, if you were to write the book again or make an addition to the book, what would you do? What would you say to parents now that might be different or value-added than where you understood the situation 10 years ago? What a great question. Well, 10 years ago, there weren't nearly as many sites and opportunities for kids to connect both with each other and with the world at large. And 10 years ago, we did not see or have the same kind of communities online that are so toxic and dangerous for children. And 10 years ago, we didn't have the multiplicity of options for children to actually do wonderful things online, create code, you know, share what their work was. The world has has multiplied exponentially. And of course, for parents, that's exponentially more challenging because none of us grew up with this. I think the issue of privacy and safety and ethics are bubbling up to the surface in extremely important ways right now. And they weren't considered when social media developed. And now, of course, we're in some very, very difficult situations, particularly when it comes to keeping our girls safe online and also the political reality we live in 
and the fact that none of us imagined 10 years ago that there would be five tech industries that together were actually more powerful than governments. So we are living in a completely different world. So as you think about that different world, um, a couple of days ago, I spoke with a number of girls about their own social media use, and they were schooling me on apps that I had not yet heard of. So we think of, you know, Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram. You know, how do parents stay ahead of this curve? Uh, it, it seems like the students know so much more than, than we do. And yet as parents, I know they're curious about getting out in front of that curve. Well, there are several things parents can do to stay ahead of the curve. There are certain websites like Common Sense Media that you can turn to or Parentology that really give you the download on a lot of actually some of the less commonly named but nonetheless very popular apps like Tumblr, GroupMe, Kick, Discord, House Party, AskFN, Disco. And the reason you don't hear about them very often as parents is that research suggests that 70% of teens do not tell their parents what they are doing on social media. So (laughs) here we go, right? I mean, it's all the more challenging. So the other thing that I think is really important, and obviously if you can start this at five, six, seven, and eight, you're ahead of the game, but it's never too late to do this now to have ongoing family conversations about your family's values, the values of the online different worlds, um, and really get some, have some very tactical conversations with your kids. Uh, Really have a family responsible use agreement, much like schools have students sign responsible use agreements. Families need to do the same thing and they need to be open conversations and not scary conversations but where you're really thinking about two main aspects of your daughter's life online, two main risk factors, actually. I mean, what you want to do is make sure you, as well as parents and your kids, have a tech-healthy, like a health and well-being approach to technology, an ethical approach to technology. And then you also want to pay attention with your daughters to the social and psychological and neurological fallout of technology. And when I wrote the book, there was very little research on that. And yet I was seeing it in my work in schools with girls and in my work as a, as a therapist in private practice. Now we have tons of research and we also have excellent apps just within the last few years to make it much easier for parents to, to know what their kids are doing. I think it's also a really important question for all parents, particularly in girls' schools, because we know there's a very different vulnerability for girls on social media, to really ask yourself, what's the right age to introduce your children to social media, and which are the right apps to use to introduce your girls to social media, and how are you going to stay connected to them in a honest and um, trustworthy way about what they're doing on social media. So I know that oftentimes, um, or at least I would hope, that parents see schools as their partners in this work. Um, I hope they do. And and I would ask you, given all the work you've done with schools, um, how can parents work with schools or how can schools work with parents? What programs have you seen that are successful? What ideas might you have? as adults in girls' lives come together on this topic? Well, I think the most successful 
partnering between parents and schools happen when the schools offer really good content and are very transparent about what they can and cannot do. So often parents want schools to do more than they actually can do. Schools can't regulate your kids at home. And I think the other thing that's very important is for parents to show up when schools are offering really good programming. One of the things I hear from schools a lot is frustration that parents just don't come or they don't join the Zoom meetings. And then, you know, it takes, unfortunately, something bad to happen. And then they realize, oh, yeah, I missed that webinar. I missed that back to school night. I think it's really important for schools to, in their back to school night or before kids are given a Chromebook or, you know, access to their email account at school to have a conversation. I mean, obviously in COVID, this is hard, but I'm a huge fan of schools having a part of either the back to school night or a separate night where kids and parents show up and they each go through a workshop looking at what responsible use looks like, problem solving and role playing. It's great to put girls in groups, people who aren't their parents. Um, how would you respond to cyberbullying? How would you respond to an inappropriate text request? How do you respond to girl drama? And really let the parents work with the girls to see how hard this all is online and how central it is to their sense of themselves and their own social emotional development and their mental health and well-being. And then end the night with parents and children and their daughters thinking about, you know, given the research on sleep, should we really let you have you know, your iPhone in your bedroom at night when we know it's so highly correlated with depression and sleep loss and increased anxiety. I mean, if you were the mom here, what would you do? So those conversations are really valuable. And when it's an all-school approach, one of the great things that happens is you get a higher percentage of parents making the same decisions with their daughters which mitigates against the anxiety girls feel that everybody else is online in their bed at 10.30 at night, and they're the only ones not. Let's jump to that great word, anxiety. I, I know uh, when I talk to girls about their social media, that pops right to the front of mind. And what you just mentioned is exactly what they say. I'm missing something. I'm being left out. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the special concerns you have as regards girls and social media? And, and of course, you know, on my mind is body image as well as some of the other things I know you'll talk about. Well, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, is excruciating for so many girls. It's not for all girls. There are sort of the 20 percenters who, who are so self-directed and, and just on their own path and really not impacted by this. But, you know, we know from the research on girls' development, the girls develop their identity, particularly in middle school on, from comparing themselves to others. And there are strengths in that, but there are also huge vulnerabilities. And the kinds of anxieties that we see, um, you know, <laughs> are often called compare and despair where girls will compare themselves either to a classmate or some star or a TV person they're following or an ad, and girls magnetize to the negative. Instead of saying, oh, I've got, you know, great this, this, and this, okay, maybe my hair is not so good, they go to, oh my God, everything about me is awful except this one thing and nobody would notice anyway. So the compare and despair phenomenon can really lead girls down a rabbit hole. 
And that's just in terms of their own identity and their own body image. And one of the problems with social media and the way it's set up, which is extremely unethical, and you know, now Facebook is admitting to it, we've all known this for several years, is that when girls Google search, you know, how to lose weight, you know, better skin, uh, whatever the most popular, you know, uh, boots are this year, they will get, their data will be used and sold and it will be used to keep them engaged in the art and drama of per- seeking perfection. So, you know, the world of social media is a perfectionistic society in terms of body image and beauty. And whether you're perfecting yourself for the boy gaze or you're perfecting yourself to be competitive with other girls, the notion that you, the most important thing you could do in all your free time is work on perfecting your image is pernicious and always has been for women, but it is extremely pernicious when it comes to social media. And of course, we've seen a huge spike in not just eating disorders and body dysmorphia and unhealthy eating, but social anxiety and social avoidance and girls being afraid to show up at things in real life because they're afraid they don't look right. And that that shows up in college as well. The other kind of anxiety that is so painful. I mean, Trudy, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm I'm really glad in some ways I was protected growing up from the kind of drama that goes on online. I mean, when we went to school, at least when I went to school, all the drama happened at school. And then when you went home, home was kind of boring. You know, you could talk to your best friend on your phone, but it was one-to-one. Girls today tell me that school is actually more of a sanctuary because there isn't as much you know, drama, they're in class, they're being productive, they're engaged, they've got teachers beaming on them, reminding them to be their kindest self. But then they go home and they're on social media and different screens for an average of six hours a day where they are so afraid of either missing out on something that's trending, not knowing what's cool, or who is actually being teased or gossiped about because They're afraid they'll be the next person. And that is excruciatingly anxiety-provoking. And it's one of the main reasons that girls, when they're doing their homework, are also on YouTube or on their phones texting. And of course, that has huge ramifications for their brain development because constant task switching leads to very poor sustained individual focused attention. And it's really, you know, their brains are developing. It's not like us when at our age, when we do a lot of, you know, being on three screens at once. We see that just the very process of going from reading work, watching YouTube, switching to a text, your mom texting you to come to dinner, going back to the YouTube, checking on what just posted on Insta, making sure you have likes, all of that excites the part of the brain that is the same part of the brain that gets excited with gambling. It is addictive. It lowercase a, not capital A most often. But you have to understand that when you are task switching, you are craving the hit of a dopamine release that makes you feel energized. And these algorithms are designed to keep you hooked So it's not just the psychological or social anxiety. There is a 
physiological and neurological anxiety that also comes with a lot of texting and being on three different screens at once. And that's something we need to teach girls much more about. And that's something parents need to understand a lot more about. I love talking to girls about this is your brain on tech. As you think about um, what you just said, which if I were a parent listening in might, might terrify me because I would not imagine what I would say to a, a girl. I, I stumble into her bedroom. It's uh, 11 o'clock at night and uh, you know the books have been cast aside and she's pouring over her social media. And I clearly understand that she's obsessed or she's anxious or uh, you know she's into the drama. Can you offer some scripts or offer some phrases or offer some techniques for how I intersect with that as a parent? Sure. Well, <laughs> first of all, um, you know, I would, I would hope that as a parent, at least for kids all the way through eighth or ninth grade, you have a policy that phones come out of the room at least a half hour before bedtime because she'll be a wreck and she won't fall asleep. But let's say you walk in on that regardless. I think the thing, the first thing I would say is, oh, sweetie, you look miserable. How are you feeling? What's going on? You look so upset. And hold the mirror up just to help her understand and articulate what she is feeling. Because one of the things we have to help girls understand is what makes them feel good about themselves in social media and what doesn't make themselves feel good about themselves with social media and make smarter choices. The next thing I would say, or I often say to kids, um, is, you know, hey, sweetie, you are the boss of your brain and you're the boss of your health and you're the boss of your sleep and you're the boss who decides whether you're going to get eight hours of sleep because I think told me you had a big exam tomorrow or a game. And, you know, you know as well as I, staying on your phone, does it help you sleep? So, I, you know, that kind of stuff. You really want to give them the research and the understanding that they have to make choices. And it's so hard. They have to self-regulate in ways that grown-ups have a hard time self-regulating. But I think the most important thing is to empathize with your daughter's upsetness. And then maybe the next morning say, you know, if you were in my shoes and you walked in with me on me at 11 o'clock at night and I was just a basket case, what advice would you give me? I love that because uh, what we know about this particular generation is that it's the second generation of uh, children to be raised on social media. And I often wonder, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, there's a value add to that, but then there's also a, a negative to that. And as you've worked with parents of, of this particular generation, value add or not so, not so value add? <laughs> I think it's challenging because when the current generation of parents was growing up, they didn't have so many options. We also didn't have the research we have now. Um, and it's what I observe is it's much harder for parents who grew up on social media to trust their own parental authority and set healthy and helpful limits with their kids. You know, your children don't write you thank you notes the next day when you say, okay, we're going to change things up. We're all going to dock our phones in the master bedroom, which I learned after interviewing 500 middle school kids and hear how they sneak down to the kitchen and then... <laughs> So in the master bedroom closet. Um, and, and, but they have a hard time just saying, you know, I know you can hate me for this, but I'm your mom. And there's, 
let's just let me just tell you all the reasons why I feel like it was completely irresponsible for me to let you do this night after night after night. And they have a hard time saying no. They don't understand how malleable their children's brains are. This generation is really hitting some compromised uh, neurological development because they are not experiencing enough tech-free time for singular focus. Um, Catherine, I want to give a you a big affirmation for that comment you just made because uh, when I spoke with the girls this week, one of the things that one of them said was in the moment she was so angry with her mom for uh, shutting down her social media. But now as she looks back, she is so grateful that her mom did that, that she saw that as one of the most positive things she could do. So I just, I want to give you a shout out um, with an affirmation on that one. And as you, as we think about, um, you know, parents' roles, I, I want to shift a little bit to uh, what's just happened in the world in the last, oh gosh, two years and, and uh, um, two years and, and on with uh, the coronavirus and COVID and at home and uh, being out of school and out of that social environment. You just said that the social environment in school is sometimes seen as now the safe haven. Um, what kinds of themes have you seen emerging that might be different or um, need to be explored more now that we've moved into this COVID terrain? Well, um, the amount of time that kids obviously are on screens has, you know, shot up exponentially. And that's been both a lifesaver and problematic and challenging. I think, you know, it's so important during COVID for teens to have a space that they're, that was their own. I mean, the last thing you want to do when you're a teenager is hang out with your parents or have your parents be aware of what you're talking about with your friends. So they need to have their own spaces where they can control sort of which part of themselves they're putting forward and what they want to share and trying on new identities, et cetera. Um, but one thing that I'm hearing from schools that I work in or, or drop in on when I consult is that um, girls are needing to relearn how to do school because they lost a year of the social skill building that happens in face-to-face partner learning and being in the classroom and waiting your turn and only, you know, being in, in one place at a time, not on two or three screens. And, you know, both the younger kids and older kids are coming back jumpy. They can't sit still for as long. Their younger kids, eight-year-olds, are grabbing their iPads or their Chromebooks when they've been told not to. Um, they're having a hard time paying attention. They're interrupting more. They're also running up to the teacher for more instant gratification, which, of course, you know, every time you you hit lowercase a and match it to uppercase a on a Chromebook, if you're a five-year-old, you get glitter. You know, that's a little dopamine hit. So the little kids are going to their teacher. Did I do it right? Did I do it right? Did I do it right? Because that's the experience neurologically of learning on a device. And I'd say one of the good things I'm seeing schools do, which I hope they hold on to, is they're adding more recess, both in middle school and high school, because kids need to move, they need to get outside, they need a break, and they need to be active playing, you know, not sports-oriented games, but I love seeing, you know, 10th graders with hula hoops playing jump rope or kickball. And it's perfectly fine if they just sit in the field like Ferdinand the Bull, but 
they really need help coming back to school. I think the most negative impact of COVID that we saw was the exponential spike in hate speech and cyberbullying. And I saw this in the schools I work with um, and certainly read about it in literature in girls as young as eight, posting mean videos, using hate language, letter U, letter R, fat, you know, you are not my friend. Um, and, you know, of course, this is what they are seeing in the media, especially when they're home all day, seeing more media, what their parents are watching. And this whole meme of mean girls is really horrible and we need to deconstruct it. But what we do know is that with anonymity, we all will say and do things we wouldn't do face to face. And unfortunately, on some of the social media web apps, not all, but some, the cultural values on social media are the opposite of school values. So at school, we say be kind. Well, on social media, you actually get more likes if you say something cool. Cruel. It's cool to be cruel. It's, you get more likes if you post a picture that's humiliating. And in terms of friendship, you know, there's this whole thing that girls do. They post a sexy picture of themselves. You know, not totally sexy, but, you know, they have the pose, the hand on the hip, the pucker lips, the sucked in cheeks. And then there's this performative kind of friendship where, you know, 50 to 100 girls respond and they say the same things over and over and over so sexy, gorgeous, babe, ah, jealous, envy. And it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's just endless. And what's so horrible is, first of all, this is performative friendship. It's not real. And second of all, if a girl only gets 27 instead of 50 that she got yesterday, she will feel bad about herself. I also want to shift as, as we, I, because I know that this is something you deeply believe in. You're not necessarily saying that girls should not have access to social media or that girls should not have access to technology. That's not, that's not what you think is the solution here. You talk a lot about balance um, and how to achieve balance. Can you, you give us some hopeful language about um, what you see as uh, positive ways in which girls are uh, engaging with technology and, and ways that parents can enforce? Well, let me just say, I, you know, you asked me what's changed in 10 years. Another thing that's changed in 10 years is the brilliant way that social media helps girls become more civically engaged and exposes them to far greater diversity, either through the people they hang out with, the kids they know, or the ideas that they come across. And, you know, about two-thirds of, of social media sites, two-thirds of teens say that social media helps them interact with people they'd never meet in their own lives and who have different points of views. And the kinds of activism we are seeing girls do in social media and in their digital environments is phenomenal. And we know that for girls to see themselves as leaders, to have a vision of themselves as leaders in of the future world they're going to inherit, the more activist impact they can have in any sphere that's pro-social, the stronger their confidence 
will be in terms of their own ability to lead. And, you know, about 60% of teenagers say that the the time they spend with their friends online um, uh, on a daily basis is, is positive. So we have to really remember that the, the, the thing that's so tricky is one bad experience can sort of, you know, hijack a girl and, the, and repeated ones can really hurt girls. I wonder, as I listen to you speak, and I, I could listen to you for a long, long time because you just have such a depth of wisdom um, on this topic. I'm wondering if there are very specific key takeaways that you could offer uh, parents or those adults listening in. And I I say this with the caveat that you've already been very specific in your suggestions. And so I know this is going to be a very useful conversation um, for parents, but are there things that have just not crept into our conversation yet that need to be in this airspace with us? Well, when I did the research for the book, um, I, I was really interested in who girls turn to and how we can get them to turn to their parents rather than sort of some dangerous, you know, online group if they were in trouble. And the first question I asked was, who do you turn to? And that was the wrong question. I got nowhere with it. So, you know, in research, it's all about the question and how you phrase it. So then the question was, okay, what are the things your parents do that make you not talk to them? If stuff is going down online and it is, it's not so good. And 10 years ago and still today, the same three adjectives come up. And I'm talking about this now because your leverage with your daughters is first and foremost religious. Talk to them and approach them about what's going on online is so critical. So the three adjectives that I hear all the time from girls is, oh my God, I never tell my mom she's too scary. My dad is so scary. And what scary parents do is they get very judgmental and they say things like, she posted that picture on Facebook. I can't believe it. She'll never get into college or we'd be mortified if you did that. Or they, they just make very harsh judgments and forget that these are kids, their works in progress. Every kid makes a mistake. You know, it's like, so if you're that scary, why would your child come to you? If you're that judgmental about other people's children, of course, they think you're going to be that harsh with them and that. That will send them hiding. The next adjective that came up was crazy. Oh my God, my parents are so crazy. And what crazy meant was that, you know, girls come to us when they are a wreck, when they are melting down, when they are sobbing, when they're ranting and raging. And sometimes we confuse being empathic with feeling their feelings. It's sort of like the urge to merge, especially between mothers and daughters. So say, you know, your daughter shows you a party, a sleepover, and she wasn't invited. You know, you might think in your heart, like, oh my God, I can't believe that is so mean, but you don't want to say that. (laughs) You know, that's joining with your daughters, you know, upset rather than help her think, you know, honey, I get you're upset, you know, let's figure out how you might approach her and talk about why you weren't invited. So you think through. Um, So crazy parents make it worse because they get more upset than the child. The third adjective that girls use is clueless. My parents are so clueless. Why would I ever go to them for advice? They never ask me what I'm doing on social media. In fact, if anything, they ask me for help with their own social media. 
So, you know, they're just like not the people I'd turn to if something was going down. So what do we do? What's the opposite of scary? It's approachable, friendly, not too intense. And what's the opposite of crazy? It's calm. You have to hold your own anxiety in check or your own worry in check because your daughters, you know, they will pick up on that and then either not tell you the truth because they don't want to upset you or be scared that you're going to get even more, you know, upset or angry. And the opposite of clueless, of course, is informed. So that's a hard one, but there are really good resources available to us through Common Sense Media, Parentology. You can Google search the name of any app that you hear kids talk about and, and look it up. But most of all, go to your school meetings. And if things are going on online, please tell your schools because things happen at home that school doesn't always know about. And it's really important. That's another place. It's really important to partner with school. Go to the workshops that they offer and ask their advice and share information if you're worried about things that are going on in your school community. Because, you know, we've lost the boundary between home and school. School happens all day, 24-7. So we need to use these wonderful tools of connection to strengthen our connections, work together, keep our girls safe. Thank you, Catherine. And as I predicted, your wisdom provided a powerful reminder that engaging with girls on social media is indeed an adult team sport. It seems so right now to have our listeners enjoy advice from a girl whose parents were spot on. One of the best suggestions my parents gave to me when I first got social media is before you post anything, before you comment anything, before you do anything on social media, think about who could see it, how it could affect them, and don't click fast they told me that they should take that i should like see something think about it and then think about how i want to respond and think about how how my response will affect people and especially in like this past like two years when social media has almost become like another news source you have you should see the news and if you feel really passionate about it like if it sparks an emotion in you really quickly it's likely that someone meant for that to happen. And so go do research and make sure that it's true before you repost it or you send it to someone because you don't you don't want to be part of that endless cycle of false information. I knew you would enjoy those thoughts from Alexa and a shout out to her parents as well. I would like to remind our listeners as we conclude this podcast that NCGS commits to good work in the realm of research on relevant issues related to girls' education. With me today is Natalie Demers, the Director of Research and Initiatives at the National Coalition of Girls' Schools. Natalie, it would be terrific if you would fill our listeners in on how NCGS addresses its mission promise to be a research-driven organization. Research initiatives at NCGS primarily focus in two areas, the first being advocacy and outcomes, which include large-scale commission studies and curated research that's already available online through journals or like-minded institutions. And the second area is practitioner-based research, and this comes primarily from the Global Action Research Collaborative on Girls' Education, where teachers are trained in action research, conduct that research in their classrooms, and then share their findings with girls' school teachers from around the world. Thanks for giving us an update on this good work, Natalie. We both know how essential good research is to creating best practice in girls' education. 
This has been the third episode of On Educating Girls. As always, we would love to hear from you with thoughts and suggestions to inform our conversations. After all, this is a conversation that is intended to meet your needs as you meet the needs of the girls in your lives. Please send comments or questions to podcast at girlschool.org and join us next time when we explore girls as entrepreneurs and innovators. Thanks for listening. It is important to the girls in your lives that you do.